My name, my name is Celestine Babington and I am, I am from this great land that is Britain. Mr Prentice stood back and nodded approvingly. But of course you are. It doesn't matter where you may have started. This is where you now live. And it is a land that has given you many opportunities, one of which is attending one of the best schools in the land. You may be seated. The couple of guffaws I heard behind me did not faze me as much as what I had just been complicit in. To deny my entire existence up to my current age, to deny my own father, my family, my country, and to realise just how easy it was becoming to do so. And I just had this feeling in me, I thought, oh, there's something here. I have to write about this child. I don't know who he is, but I have to write about him. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am delighted to be joined by Lola J., author of the novel, The Attic Child. In order to view a brighter future, we have to look at the murky past. Lola Jay was born and raised in London, England, where she still makes her home. She has also briefly lived in Nigeria. By the time you read this, Lola's first U.S. novel was published by HarperCollins in 2009. Her inspirational essay, Reaching for the Stars, How You Can Make Your Dreams Come True, in which she charted her journey from foster child to author, was released in 2009 as a part of the U.K.'s wildly popular Quick Reads program. Today, I'll be talking to Lola about her book, The Attic Child. So to start, can you tell us when you first met Dikembe, who became Celestine, and how soon after that did you decide to write a novel about him? And obviously, I mean met as in you know, learned about him. Sure. So in 2016, I had just got back from America after living there for three years, um, ironically. And I was pretty displaced, thinking, eh, what am I going to write next? What am I going to do? And I was invited along to an exhibition um, at the Natural Portrait Gallery. Now, this exhibition has done its tour around the world. So it wasn't, I've since learned it wasn't just there. Um, and there was these images, um, which now belong to Getty Images, but they had been found in a vault, um, locked away for about 100 years. And someone found them and, you know, the rest is history. So they did this tour. I went to the, the, the art gallery. So there's quite a few pictures of, you know, black people in England in the 18th century, which is sort of an oxymoron. Um, growing up in this country as a black person, we weren't really taught that we were here before the 1940s. 
So um, Empire Windrush, which you may have heard of, was when there was an influx of people from the Caribbean. Um, and so, you know, learning that there were people here in the Victorian times is not something that, that, I, that we knew about. We knew, but we didn't know. So these photographs represented part of that history. So I saw this picture of this little boy um, and his eyes just followed me everywhere. And I just had this feeling in me. I thought, oh, there's something here. I have to write about this child. I don't know who he is, but I have to write about him. So I did a quick search when I got home and I realised that he had died at the age of 12. So the writer in me is like, well, his life ended before it really began. What am I going to write about? So I decided to reimagine his story and to reimagine what his life would have looked like if he had been allowed to grow into a man, experience adulthood and all that comes with it. And that's how really I was introduced to Dikembe. And you, can you tell us more about his story historically and about mm -hmm. the practice of bringing African children overseas as, I guess you would say, companions maybe? Sure. So the child um, that I based Dikembe on is called Undugu Mahali. And he was um, brought over um, from Africa um, as a child by an explorer called Stanley. And, you know, this was pretty much commonplace in those days. I mean, even the Queen Victoria um, had a, a so-called goddaughter, um, you know, that she, you know, that she called her goddaughter who was from Africa. But we never know much about their life before they got to England. And obviously they had a life. So this really interested me because it was a common practice. It was acceptable. It was actually seen as helping the natives um, you know, taking these children from their from their parents. And so I was very much interested in this, but I'm more interested in the story of the child. And if we look at history, the narrative is only interested in the actual person that captures the child. And I say capture the child because I feel that it's too nice and too easy to say that, oh, they just brought the child over. No, they captured them. They took them from their rightful place, brought them over, um, and that's the truth of it. So all the stories do centre on the, the person who captures the children. And I wanted to give a voice to a child, basically. And can you talk more about what you were able to learn about this boy? Um, you say he died at 12 and you say that, the, you know, the what's available is about the people who, who captured him. Yeah. What, yeah. what were you able to fill in the gaps around in order to figure out exactly, you know, how much were you able to learn about who he actually was? So ironically, I I even contacted the biographer of Stanley, um, the man who, who, who captured him, and um, he didn't even know much about him. But what I could piece together was that he was 12. Um, he was with Stanley maybe from about seven or eight, and he was actually born in Tahoma in Tanzania. But he actually died in the Congo. Um, when he was, he accompanied Stanley on one of his exhibitions and he died in the Congo. And that's why I decided to base the novel partly in the Congo. Even though the original child was born in Tanzania, I felt that Congo was the place to be because A, that's where he died. And there's some waterfalls named after him. Um, I don't know if they're still named after him, but they were after his death. And also I wanted to bring the story of the Congo that a lot of us don't really know about. A lot of us don't know that up to about 25 million Africans were killed um, at the hands of King Leopold. Um, you know, not many people know that. And I kind of wanted to kind of weave that into the story. So I did have an ulterior motive there. 
Well, let's move on to one of the other main characters in the novel, Laura. Can you tell me about her and how she came about in your mind? And is she based on anyone? Um, Laura is based on many people in the sense that many people that are troubled, um, that are misunderstood, but are products of abuse. So we know that both characters are very similar in their background. They've both been let down by adults. So with Laura, she's in a more privileged position just by mere fact of being able to have a therapist. I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but she's in a privileged position, but she suffered, um, you know, abuse. So she is a multitude of all those people that have been misunderstood and, and hurt by society and let down. Um, yeah, she's a lot of people. So forgive my ignorance as an American, but when you talk about when the novel was set, you talk about it set in Edwardian times. Can you explain what that means? Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. So the Edwardian era basically was the last time um, a point in British history was named after a monarch who reigned over it. So during the Edwardian era, it was basically King Edward, and he reigned between 1901 to 1910. And that's why we refer to that as the Edwardian era. When we look at the Victorian era, we look at the reign of Queen Victoria and so on. Well, I, I want to move on to, you know, beyond this story, The Attic Child, and ask you more about you as a writer. I read that you didn't like history as a child and now you write historical fiction. Can you explain how that happened? Absolutely. Um, I hated history. And I think part of that is because Every time we learned about history, nobody looked like me. I mean, it's all good and well, you know, hearing about Henry VIII, it's quite interesting, you know, killing off all these wives and so forth. But, but there was no African history in there. And here I am, I exist. So African history must exist to some extent. And a lot of that must be entwined with England because we had the British Empire. So I guess I was disillusioned. It just didn't interest me. Um enough so it wasn't until I was an adult and you know I start to have agency over what I learn that I started to you know learn more about you know African history how that entwines with you know European history and that's when something piqued my interest and then I looked at the books that I was reading and I was thinking hmm it doesn't it's not reflected in the books that I like to read so why don't I start writing something why don't I write something that I would want to read can you talk more about that, about broadening the narrative to include more voices and more perspectives and more history and how valuable it is that you and other writers like you are now doing that? Yeah, it's really, really valuable. I mean, on the first page of my book, um, if you see that, I wrote a quote by Chinua Achebe, and it's actually a quote that is, a, is very much an African proverb, but I had to simplify it by at least attributing it to Chinua Achebe. Basically, it says, until the lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. So if black people, people of color are the ones that are, that are being hunted, but it's the hunter's voice that is constantly being heard, then the narrative is always going to be shaped towards them. So it's about time the hunted started to speak and I'm really really passionate about that because when that happens there becomes a balance at the moment there's still an imbalance but we're getting there and I'm trying to have a contribution to that in some way 
I want to ask you about something you called your under the cupboard manuscripts. <laughs> right. Uh, how did you know, like when you wrote your first manuscript, um, did you have to kind of hold back from seeking publication? How did you know when you were ready to actually move forward with uh, putting your books out in the world? I think I wanted to be a writer for a long time and it wasn't until I'd finished my master's degree because I'm also a, a psychotherapist. So I'd finished my master's degree and I had to write a thesis on psychotherapy and that was like 20 to 30,000 words. And I thought, wow, if I can write 20 to 30,000 words, surely I can write a whole book. So this slight, slightly arrogant um, young person that I was thinking, oh, I could do that. Um, yeah, it, it, I did write something, um, but it, simply wasn't good enough. And I think that the first one you, you you write is kind of autobiographical. And so you kind of get all your angst out. It's quite cathartic. So I got all that out. Um, I managed to secure an agent who saw something in me, but that just wasn't it. That just wasn't the one that was going to start my career. And it took a while for me to actually just realise that, hold on, I need, I need to get on with the next book. And my agent was, you know, very encouraging and saying, you know, just write the next book. You've got something. Yeah, you've got all these rejections, but you'll get there. And so um, I placed it under the bed or under the cupboard and, and there it shall stay. Um, I had a look at it a few years ago and I was quite embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, no, that wasn't the one. I think that's marvelous that you're able to, you know, view view your work objectively like that. Uh, you did mention uh, that you work as a psychotherapist. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm in, very interested to learn about how you use your background as a psycho, psychotherapist to enhance your characters and your stories. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Obviously, whilst I would never use anything that I hear in practice, what it does for me, it gives me an in-depth lot knowledge, I guess, to some degree, of certain motivations. So I think, like, with the character of La- La- Laura, sorry, I was going to call her Lara then, that's another character in another book. But Laura um, is clearly suffering from mental illness. I mean, it's obvious. I, I drip-feed it, but it's pretty obvious early on that there's mental illness there, to some extent. And so I feel very confident writing about that. Um, because of my background, I suppose, in that sense. And I'm always very interested in motivations. So if I'm going to write a thriller and it's the opening scene is, you know, someone shooting down a, a lollipop man. Do you have lollipop men in America? I can't remember. A lollipop person. Uh, I don't believe we do. Oh, well, they help children cross the road and they wear this weird outfit. Um, but they're, they're really great people. And So if my opening scene is someone shooting, you know, a sweet lollipop person who's only nice to children, um, I'm going to write that character in a way that is going to be sympathetic or I'm going to try my best. And I'll know how to do that, if that makes sense, Um, because I'm very interested in motivations. What makes people do what they do? And I think as a therapist, you are confronted with that every day and you're training to be a therapist. It's the question that comes up all the time. Um, is it background? Is it nature, nurture, that kind of stuff? So, yeah, I really do feel that it does um, help me in that way. But in that way only, as I said, I would never use anything that I've come across in practice. You also speak about issues revolving around um, imposter syndrome 
Can mm-hmm. you talk about what that is and, and how you deal with it? I think a lot of us suffer from that. I think, you know, people high up in industry that run businesses, corporations, they suffer from it. And it, it basically, it's just this kind of feeling that, what am I doing here? You know, you could be a bo- in a boardroom of, of millionaires and you're one of the millionaires and it's like, oh, I don't deserve to be here. Or you could be, um, you know, at a lunch that, you know, your your um, faculty uh, have done for you because you're, you know, one of the, the, the best lecturers I've ever had, best professors. And you think, what am I doing here? I don't deserve this. And it's almost like an unconscious process that happens. You just feel that you almost don't deserve to be there or you shouldn't be there or someone's made a mistake. Um, you know, even if you look it up, you'll see there's quite a few famous people that have admitted to suffering from that. Um, I think a lot of women suffer from it. Um, I think especially women that are doing well, they feel that they're not deserving of it. Um, so yeah, I think it's more common than you think. Um, and I, and I quite like doing talks on it because at the end of the day, no matter what happens, it's about remembering that you do deserve to be there. You've put the work in and you are good enough. So yeah, that, that's a, that's kind of in a nutshell, my interpretation of imposter syndrome. And have you always been comfortable public speaking or did that say, take some time to develop? I think it must have taken some time to develop. It, it must have. Um, I always get nervous, but I think the minute I stop getting nervous, then that's not a good thing. So I think it's good to have healthy nerves. Um, but public speaking, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. It just did. And I think as a writer these days, you know, you have to be prepared to publicize your book and that's going to mean some public speaking yeah so you kind of have to get out of that kind of shyness mode if you want to sell some books yeah you gotta you gotta put yourself out there yeah it's uncomfortable because writers are quite solitary by nature and some people can be quite introverted to myself I'm quite introverted and extroverted so I'm lucky I have the dichotomy but there's some people that are very much introverted and it can be very hard Well, I want to go back briefly to your novel, The Attic Child, and I wonder if you could talk about some of the goals that Celestine develops as he grows older, and I'm wondering if any of those goals are in line with some of your own goals as a writer. Yeah, absolutely. There's a fire that burns in Celestine where he kind of wants to be an activist, but doesn't really want to, doesn't, doesn't want to, but does want to. And he knows that things need to be done, but he knows that he hasn't got the power to change the narrative. Because we're talking about, you know, 19, you know, 1910, 1915, 20. These weren't great times for black people. (laughs) You know, they're not now, but then it was even worse. So he knows he can't change it with the flick of a switch. So what can he do with what he's got? Um, and, And again, without giving much away, we kind of see that journey that he goes on. So with myself, it's almost the same with my writing. Um, I know that, you know, society is very much in trouble at the moment, but what can I do? I can't change the world, but what can I do with what I've got? So that kind of drives me. So in my writing, how can I educate without being too preachy? How can I let people know that this is happening, this has happened, you know, without ramming it down anyone's throat? So that's my little way of doing it. And even as a therapist, you know, I'm contributing something somewhere that will hopefully help and change someone's life for the better. So, yeah, that's where our similarities lie. That's a great question. I've not really been asked that question before. Yeah. 
Um, can you talk a little bit more about connecting the past with the present? Certainly in your novel, you have two characters that are connected you know, over a, a little less than a century of time. And now, 50 years on from then, um, can you talk about how historical fiction and your work in particular helps, helps us understand our present moment by showing how connected we are to it? Yeah, I mean, that's probably why I like to do dual um, dual timelines, because the modern day version, you know, and in the older version and how they connect. And I just feel that even me as a person, um, I wouldn't be as well. I'm not fully ra- well rounded right now, but I think we need to know where we've been um, to kind of look to where we're going. So I think with the novels, um, the characters almost go through that metamorphosis as well. Um, Laura has a past and she's looking towards the future, but she needs to look at the past to see what happened and what is going to shape her future. And with Celestine, I'm trying to say this without giving stuff away. Um, That's okay. Um, well, just just elaborate a little bit more on on our present moment and and how you see, you know, giving a reader some context to not just understand where we're at, but maybe also contribute to making positive change to continue moving forward. By looking at the past, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's important that we never forget the past, if that makes sense, because we need to know what happened in order to be able to move forward. And there's a theme um, in this story. I mean, there's an explorer, like the original Stanley that I'd spoken about. And while I was writing this in 2020, obviously COVID had, had just happened, but also the Black Lives Matter, you know, narrative was being spoken everywhere. And these statues were being knocked down. I don't know if you remember seeing that. All over the world, statues of explorers um, had been knocked down. And I remember thinking, okay, this is history that's been knocked down. Do we, A, get rid of the statue and pretend it never happened? Or B, let's keep the statue maybe inside a, a museum so we never forget what happened. And I'm of the opinion we, we, we never should forget what happened. Um, we should see these people, probably, you know, in a museum, as I said, probably not celebrated outside. But in order to see, in order to view a brighter future, we have to look at the murky past. Yeah, that was that was quite a debate here in, in the States. Yeah. And even right here in my own backyard at the, the state capitol in St. Paul, there's a, there was a statue of Christopher Columbus and, and there was a lot of controversy around that. Gosh, yes, of course. The Christopher Columbus. Oh, we could do a whole show on him, but yeah. <laughs> well, can you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. Um, I'm working on a novel which is a, a little bit different than The Attic Child because I think The Attic Child stands alone in the sense that it's the first time I've ever written about a real person and will probably be the last time. I mean, I really shouldn't say stuff like that because you never know what the future holds, but it was so special and it was so unique. I don't see that happening again. So I've gone back to writing about fictional people, um, you know, loosely basing them on people that obviously have existed in that time, but really from my own head. And this time I'm actually basing, basing it on a woman, um, a young woman. And I'm loosely, very loosely basing it on my 
grandparents' early story. Um, but it's not about them, but they have inspired this story. Well, Lola, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Congratulations on The Attic Child and, and all your success. And it's been a, such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Colin. I appreciate that. explain it uh yeah yeah i was i was thinking in my head how i was going to cut that up to, to make it, it. <laughs> but that yeah that'll work fine what would you say it again to make it all clear um sure yeah why don't you go again and then that'll make it easier for me to just cut the whole section and move on do you want to ask me the question again so i can, can yeah